Good morning. Appreciate people playing for my voice. Let me see if uh, machines can help a little bit. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. All right, Lord willing. My voice will increase stronger and stronger throughout the message instead of becoming weaker and weaker. But we do have a volume button, so hopefully that will also help. All right, turn with me, if you would, to the next person we will study in the book of Judges. The book of Judges... Chapter 4. You remember we started the book of Judges last week with the first judge, Othniel. We're going to skip a couple and go to the fourth judge, whose name is Deborah. And if you were an Israelite like me, you'll know Deborah. Deborah is a woman's name. And that's one of the things we'll have a chance to look at. This is the only woman judge that Israel had, the only woman ruler that Israel had until 1970 when uh, Israel elected a female prime minister to rule over them. Um, actually, there was also a, a short period of time where there was a, an evil queen that tried to kill all the descendants of the kings of Judah and she ruled for a few years. You want to count that too. But other than that, this is the only female ruler we had which actually is not the main point of the story. So we'll try to leave that behind us as quick as we can. So Judges chapter 4 and verse 1. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Chatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Haroshet Hagoim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Yabin had 900 chariots of iron. For 20 years, he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. All right, we've come across another dark period in the days of Israel where they're being afflicted by their enemies. But before we think too much about that, it's good to take a step back and think what should have been going at this time in the land. If you remember, we saw Joshua. We, we spent about a month on Joshua finally bring the nation of Israel into their inheritance. This was the land that God gave them. It should have been them. They should have completely ruled over it without any opposition. God was delivering it to them. Caleb and Joshua saw it. Caleb, uh, Caleb and Joshua, yeah, I think those were the two spies, right? I mean, they recognized, boy, you know, yes, these are giants and these cities are fortified to the heavens, but their protection is gone from them. God is giving us the land. Let's go and possess it. So they should be living here in victory. And yet we're finding here that they're living in defeat. Defeat. Why did this happen? Why were they living in defeat? Let me turn a couple of chapters back in Judges to chapter 2 and verse 1. says here, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? So there was a command to go into the land and wipe everybody out, drive them away. God didn't want anybody there besides the children of Israel. Why? All right, we'll keep flipping to the left here. We're going to now go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is where Moses was talking to the children of Israel, preparing them for the conquest of the land. And this is what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, no show mercy to them. 
nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their son, to uh, your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars. You shall break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So here we have God's giving them very specific instruction. Get rid of everybody else in the land. And he gives here the reason. In verse 4, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. God knew their hearts. They weren't going to stay faithful to God when there were other people in the land doing things that God didn't want them to do. God knew they would be tempted and they'd start following these, what these other people were doing and worshipping their gods. And God said, no, I want you to be different. I chose you. I raised you out of amongst all the earth, all the nation. I picked you. I brought you out. I'm doing something special with you. Really what God was doing, he was going to reveal himself to the world through this nation. By them living completely differently from the way everybody else was living. The whole, all the world, all the nations were worshipping idols made by hands. Here was the living God choosing himself a nation to come and worship him. And if they would really worship him, really follow his law, you'd be able to look at them and know the real God. How the real God is different from all these idols how what they had is the truth. They were, in a sense, to be the light of the Gentiles, as we are supposed to be. That was, in a sense, their job in a more limited way. But yes, they were supposed to show the world what God is like, but that required that they behave differently, that they follow the laws of God, and that unfortunately required complete separation, because God knew if they were, if they were living in the midst of other nations, you know, their weak flesh, their sinful hearts, they will follow what the other nations were doing instead of the laws of God. All right, well, unfortunately, that's what happened. So as we turn back to the book of Judges, chapter 4, at least we know what's going on here. The nations of Israel... Okay, well, actually, let me stop that. Uh, we started reading about it in Judges 2. So let's go, go ahead and go back to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where we were reading. God specifically said, You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What did they do? They made a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. We're not talking about the Gibeonites. We know that happened. That was a mistake. But God recognized that mistake. And he actually said, okay, you may not touch the Gibeonites now because you made an oath before the Lord. And later they will be judged when Saul decides to go after the Gibeonites. But if you were to look at the land of Israel, and I'm sorry I didn't bring a map here, but we'll pretend there's a map here. And the children of Israel came into the land through across the, the, the Jordan River, and they kind of went south, and they conquered some land in the south. They went north, they conquered some land in the north. Then they kind of came back and grouped together. And that's actually the place we're talking about in chapter 2. They didn't go all the way. They conquered some land, but they didn't conquer all the land. They, they destroyed some cities, they destroyed some peoples, they had some great victories, but for whatever reason, they didn't go all the way. And I won't turn, turn there, but the reason they didn't go all the way is they started meeting, I think part of it was a momentum issue. I mean, they came into the land, they were gang-ho, they you know, did this, they did that, and maybe they slowed down a bit, and they came across some new enemies that had chariots. And that was pretty scary, like if you were a full soldier and you're used to fighting people and all of a sudden you see some tanks riding, you know, toward you. Like, boy, I don't think I can handle those things. And that's what happened. They, they, whether it was lack of momentum or all of a sudden a new kind of enemy, they were just not ready to meet them. And, and they said this, well, you know, we got a lot of space. We conquered some land. Let's live in the space we conquered. And, you know, we'll try to be somehow friendly with these people over here. And, you know, you know make, make uh, what is it, love, no war. You know, let's, let's be friendly with these people. We can live, we can get along with them. 
That's what they were thinking. All right. That's man's way. Okay, God's way. Drive them all out of the land. Man's way. No, you know, we, we got some land for ourselves. I, th- I see we have a little bit of space here. Let's, let's go ahead and, and let them have the rest of it. And, you know, who knows? Maybe we can get it in some other way that will come up later. All right. Well, what was the consequence? The consequence, as we read, was when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan. We, we, we read it. We talked about it. They were now being ruled over by the people that they were supposed to drive out of the land. Okay? To appreciate it, we're going to go ahead and turn to chapter 5. We're going to flip a lot between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, main reason is I'm not going to read all of chapter 5. But chapter 5 is known as the Song of Deborah. You could read the first verse of chapter 5 in the book of Judges. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, sang. All right, so the rest of it is the song that Deborah sang and Barak sang on the day of victory, the day they'll finally... We'll, we'll stop talking about the bad news and we'll start talking about the good news. But it's, it's in a sense, it's an interpretation of what was happening here, as you will see. So I'll, I'll be turning to chapter 5 to look at parallel passages or passages that are explaining what we're seeing in chapter 4. So I'll look now at a passage here that is a parallel passage to the state of defeat before their enemies. And that will be in verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, he, by the way, was the other judge besides for Ehud that we skipped over. In the days of Yael, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. As we look at these verses, a rather pathetic image of the nation of Israel arise. By pathetic, I don't mean that you know, we should look down our nose at them, but it's a sad state. It's a sad state. The highways are deserted. What are the highways? That's the main road that you take to get somewhere. Instead, the travelers walked along the byways. Byways are the kind of longer, slower road you take to get. Why were they walking on the byways? They were scared of what they might meet on the highways. The enemies of Israel were stronger than them. And if you were to meet them on the highway, which is where most people are, and therefore you probably will meet your enemies on the highways, you know, you'd be in trouble. Village life ceased. Village life consists in what's happening in the public squares of the village. And it ceased. Why? Because people were staying in their homes. They were afraid to go outside to the center of the village and have a social life. And that's why the village life ceased in Israel. People were hiding in their homes. People were walking in the byways. They were scared. In verse, in verse 8, it says, then they chose new gods, then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. These were the people who came in and, and conquered half the land. And now you can't find any of them even holding a weapon in their hands. I'm wondering if maybe they had some weapons, they were hiding them at home. Because they were afraid of giving battle. Okay, they were, this was a state of fear in Israel. They were afraid of their enemies. They were weak. They were weak. Why? Why was Israel so weak? Well, we saw the words for it in the first verse of chapter 4. Sorry, the second verse. The Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan. Their power was from God. God said it from the start. He said, I'm going to give you seven nations that are stronger and mightier than you. They were stronger and mightier than the children of Israel. The only reason the children of Israel could stand against them and defeat them was because of the power of God. God gave them power to defeat their enemies. Well, what's happening now? Well, they forsook God. They decided to try to buddy up with the people they were supposed to drive away. And as a result, they 
they started giving them their, their daughters for their sons, and they took those daughters for their sons. They started worshiping their gods. And when they started worshiping their gods, forget it. God is out of here. He's not going to uphold his people. He's not going to lend his strength, his power, to people who are forsaking him and are not worshiping him and not doing what he told them to do. He left them. They were doing evil in his sight. They chose other gods. God backed up. They had no power. Now their enemies were all over them. They were afraid to move. They were weak. All right, is that bleak enough for you? That was the state of the nation of Israel. Now, we want to always be careful as we're talking about other people to think about ourselves. This is, after all, the purpose of this series of sermons as we're looking at different characters to see how does it apply to us today. And uh, a story comes to mind. I might have told it before. Uh, when I was a relatively new believer, but not completely new. I might have been a year old in the Lord, and I think I had a pretty high opinion of myself at the time because I just completed a, a short-term mission to New York where we were witnessing to people on the street. And a friend of mine told me, it was a, a classmate of mine. I should be careful when I use the word friend sometimes. Not the best choice of words. A classmate of mine was Jewish, and you know, I told him I was Christian. At the time I used to wear my shirt, Jews for Jesus, you know, going to class, so I was very noticeable. And uh, he said he had a friend, and I may want to talk to his friend. He said he had a roommate that used to be a Christian. I said, all right, okay, great, an opportunity to witness to somebody. Well, turns out, uh, this was a person who, yeah, he claims he used to be a Christian, but uh, he had a very weak testimony. I mean, there wasn't really much of a testimony. You know, he, did, he was raised uh, in a Christian household. He went to a church a few times in college, and then he heard an invitation to uh, uh, a meeting by a rabbi about why Jesus is not the Messiah. And he said, oh, I'll go there and I'll prove him wrong. And he goes and he comes out convinced that Jesus is not the Messiah. He, there's a lot of uh, what you call Jewish uh, anti-apologetics. All these arguments that they have of why Jesus can't be the Messiah. And this guy was convinced. And uh, somehow he felt that it was his duty to tell all Jews that believed in Jesus that Jesus is not the Messiah. You know, why as a Gentile feel that that's his main mission in life? I don't know. <laughs> but that was, that was his feeling. So it wasn't really... You know, a person that was really open to me sharing about Christ with him, he was really there to try to convince me that Jesus was not the Messiah. Well, I, was, I, I, I thought I, I had a lot of knowledge too, so, you know, I wasn't afraid. And I, you know, he, I tried to let him say his piece and that I wanted to share with him about Christ, hoping he'll get saved. And he wasn't open, so he, wasn't, he didn't really take anything. But uh, I was bothered by some of the things he said. Uh, I don't know that they were particularly strong arguments. They certainly had holes in them. But uh, I used to run into him occasionally because he worked in the same place I did, in LBL. That's kind of the hill above Berkeley. I was going to school at the time. And for some reason, I felt fear. I remember feeling fear lest I meet this guy on the road. And uh, the Lord showed me that the reason for my fear were problems in my life. It wasn't the power of his argument. This guy wasn't this super smart person that really could uh, you know, go around you in circles. But I wasn't quite right with God. There were things in my life that I wasn't dealing with. And because of those things, I was experiencing a period without the power of God in my life. And that put fear in me when I would have to face somebody and witness to them of God. And it should. If you don't have the power of God on your side, you're going to be on the losing side. You don't have the power to stand against the enemies of God. We, we uh, often name them the devil, the world, and the flesh. You couldn't defeat any of them without the power of God on your side. And, and you will lack the power of God when those things in your life you don't deal with. Like the children of Israel, they had these nations in the land they were not dealing with. They weren't throwing them out. And instead, they, these nations led them into sin, into idolatry, and then the power of God 
was gone. I wonder if there's somebody here today that might feel that they don't have the power of God right now in their lives. Or maybe it's a message for you. Be encouraged. All right, let's continue here with chapter 4, picking up in verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. All right, let's deal with this woman thing right now. Deborah was a woman. She was in the center of God's will for her. He called her to be a prophetess, which means she declared the word of God to people. He called her to be a judge, which made her the highest political authority in Israel at that time. Right. Why is that a problem? Well, it bothers some of us uh, because we know that that's not the normal role that a woman plays. Okay? It's not usual for a woman to have authority over a man. In fact, the scriptures say specifically that that shouldn't be the case. I'll go ahead and read it very quick. You don't even have to turn there. Um, if I can only find it here. I know I have it written down. Right, 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 15, through 15, if you want to look it up sometime on your own time, says this, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. So there we have it. The scripture says that, that the role of a woman shouldn't be in authority over a man. That's, that's not the way God created and designed things to be. Of course, we see God can completely change it and still take a woman and, and give her authority over a man. God can do what he wants to do. It's not the normal role. Uh, <coughs> It appears that the, the normal role here for a woman chiefly has to do with the bearing of children and raising children, as we read in verse 15. Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Let me make a couple of statements about that. Number one, it doesn't make women inferior to men. The Bible is very clear that they have the same value before God, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So you have the same value before God. Okay? The problem has to do with this. We have this mindset that's saying, well, the best place to be is in authority over others. Okay? This thing here of taking care of children and raising them, ah, that's not so important. And therefore we're saying, well, God must be giving love men more because, look, he's giving them this better position. Well, the whole problem is in our minds thinking that this is a better position than this position over here. Nowhere does God say that having authority over people makes you more valuable or more important or is in any way a better job than raising and training children. Okay, now, I know because I used to be the same way. Ah, raising children, come on. But being a father changed that, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and think about these words here, the job that God describes for women here. Uh, if I can find it again. Right. It says, Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing if they, that is her children, continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. A woman is given this. She's given this... Uh, what would you call them? Autonomous beings. Children are autonomous. They have a power of choosing. They can choose what to do. Okay, you're supposed to take these people that have a freedom of choice. They have a corrupted nature. They, will, they would uh, naturally tend towards sin and doing that which is wrong. Okay? If you don't believe that, study your Bible a little bit. Okay? Or have some of your own children. That will help you see that. Okay. Number two... Okay, you're raising them up in a world that is corrupted, okay, where people are doing wrong things. So they have a lot of bad example to follow. And the world is ruled by a spirit that desires to keep people as far away from God as possible. Now your job is to take those 
this situation produced children that continue in faith, demonstrates love, holiness, and self-control. All right, who wants that job? I'm taking volunteers right now. I have a couple children over there. I would, I would, submit, to, I would submit that without the power of job, the power of God, that job is impossible. Okay, you will not be able to produce children that are faithful, loving, holy, with self-control. It's the work of God. And yet, it's a job he placed in the hands of women. And for some reason, this world is telling them that's not an important job. You know, let somebody else do it and go, you know, get a career. Which is, I believe, one of the things that's destroying this society. Because it basically enhances the corruption of the younger generation, which is the people who will be in charge of this world. You know, nobody is training them to do what's right. Now, I shouldn't say that, you know, you, I, I understand in some circumstances women have to work. You know, it's not wrong for women to have a career. But still, this is the principal uh, uh, role that God designed for women, which is at least as honorable in the sight of God as, you know, somehow ruling over other people. Okay? Might be more honorable than ruling over other people. Okay? So it's really our own perverted mind that thinks that because of that, Somehow, women are less important. Well, anyways, we're back to the, the, the main story here. We'll leave this behind us. Why is God picking a woman for this job? Right? I like what Dave said last week. He said, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro to see if there's any heart that's loyal toward him. So he can show himself strong on his behalf. And God looked, and God looked, and he searched, and there was no man in the nation of Israel that had a loyal heart to God that he could pick up. People were so discouraged, hiding in their houses, going on the byways, hiding their weapons, afraid of the enemies of God. God couldn't find anybody that wanted to fight for him or stand up for him. So he raises up a woman to do the job. Okay? Which you know, doesn't, again, mean that in any way women are less successful in this. It's just not the natural law. But God will raise a woman when there's no men around to do the job he wants done. So he raised Deborah. Well, uh, am I getting ahead of myself? Okay, so we're talking about Deborah. We read verses 4 and 5. Let me say this about Deborah. There was another somewhat exceptional thing about Deborah as a judge over the nation of Israel. Most judges would, you know, you know lift up a sword, sword, raise a trumpet, blow the trumpet, and say, follow me. You know, if, if you look at the Last time we looked at uh, Othniel and Ehud and Gideon and maybe Samson. So Samson was kind of a guy who did it all on his own. But generally speaking, they lifted the sword and they led Israel into battle against their enemies. Deborah doesn't do that. Okay? Her job is this. She is an encourager or an exhorter. Her job was to encourage the children of Israel to get up. Yes, you're, you're weak. Yes, you're afraid. But it's all because you left God. Go back to God and stand up and fight and drive the, the enemies of Israel out of here. That's, that was her job. She was an encourager, an exhorter. And uh, we need encouragers and exhorters in the church of God. Because we also, like I, just, I mentioned, I know, I know from personal experience, get discouraged. We allow other things in our lives. We leave God and we become powerless and we can't do anything and we're discouraged, we're down on our faces. We need somebody to come and lift us up. And the scriptures confirm this because it says this. Where was that? Okay, this is, I'm reading from Romans chapter 12. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I don't know if you caught it. This is a list of the gifts of the Spirit of God that God gives to different individuals in the church that they'll minister to the church and help and edify the church. Well, right there in the middle of it, we usually kind of skip it. You know, we don't seem to talk about it when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Right there, there's 
there was he who exhorts in exhortation. That, that to exhort basically means the same thing as to encourage. It's to incite somebody to do the right thing. In particular, it's to incite, is, Deborah was trying to incite the children of Israel to get up and follow God and drive their enemies out, which was the right thing. And, uh, you know, maybe you're sitting there today and you have the gift of exhortation and uh, to encourage people. And let me tell you, use it. We need it. You know, it's the, the gift of, of teaching came right before the gift of exhortation. And a lot of time we think that the gift of teaching is somehow, you know, important and all. And we don't pay attention to these other gifts that are just as necessary for the body of Christ. Someone to come along me when I'm discouraged and encourage me and say, tell me, remind me about the things of God and get me to stand up again and, and fight the good fight again. Okay. Uh, let's, so we're still in Judges 4. Let's go ahead and continue with verse 6. Then she, that is Deborah, sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Yabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. All right, what have we here? Well, first we have here Deborah doing what she's supposed to do, right? She's trying to get the children of Israel to get up and drive the enemies out. And uh, she starts with encouraging Barak. If I mispronounce some of the names, it's because I'm using the correct pronunciation. <laughs> So she's encouraging Barak to go up and fight. And it's, it's really noticeable how much Barak needs this encouragement. Because she tells him, look, the Lord told you to do it. Why aren't you doing it? And she says, he says this, if you go with me, I'll go. If you're not going with me, I'm not going. All right. I mean, what's that for the general of Israel? Supposed to lead them into battle. Okay. Well, it's really just a discouraged state. I, I don't think he's, he's saying, you know, I want you to throw in your lot with me. But he's saying, I want to know the Lord's on my side. I'm af yes, I'm afraid. And, and just to give Barak some credit here, he's told to go with 10,000 men. Okay? That's not a big army. Okay? And he's going to go against the multitudes of you know, the kings of Canaan. And uh, they have 900 chariots of iron. Okay? There wasn't a shield or a spear in Israel. Again, maybe they had some at home, but the weaponry was probably not equal to what the Canaanites had. Okay? Humanly speaking, it was an impossible battle to win. Okay? So you could understand a general not wanting to engage in a situation like that, unless he knows he has the power of God behind him. But again, it shows his state. He needs the encouragement. And Deborah encourages him and says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And uh, I know we can be discouraged, especially when we review defeats in our life. I think we, we see sins that we didn't succeed in defeating those things in my life that I've been maybe struggling with for years and the certain actions I need to take and I'm afraid of taking them. And it's wonderful to know that Jesus says this, that, uh, Lo, and I am with you till the end of the age. He's not asking you to do it alone. Okay, he's with you. His power is with you. Okay. Right. So we should remember, it's good for us to remember that there's a choice of whether to, to respond to an encouragement. Deborah is coming alongside Barak, and, and I know the call went out to the rest of Israel. I mean, Barak was called to lead. But the rest of Israel was also technically had the same assignment. We're supposed to get rid 
of this nation. And Barak only represented one tribe, maybe two. And she needed, the call went out to all of Israel. And we can read about their response in the Song of Deborah, again, chapter 5. All right, chapter 5, starting at verse 13. Then the survivors came down, the people against the noble. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples, from Bakir, rulers came down, and from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Ishashchar were with Deborah. As Ishashchar, so was Barak sent into the valley under his command. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfold to hear the pipings for the flocks? The, Rubens of, the divisions of Reuben had great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the height of the battlefield. Well, we see there were different responses in Israel to the call. You did have some that rose up with Barak and were willing to risk their lives in the battlefield, fighting for God. And then you have some that you read about them having great searchings of hearts. What's that all about? Well, you know, I think it's one of those things we do too much. I know I do too much as I think about it. Well, you know, there's a call out to go and do this. Well, I'll think about it. I'll pray about it. And, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking and praying about it, and I count the cost, and I'm saying, ah, that's just not up to me. You know, I can't handle that. That's too much. That's too much. I think that's all it was. They were just scared. They thought about it. You know, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm after the task. They had great searchings of heart. But they didn't respond to the call. They were not encouraged. Remember, Deborah is an encourager. She's trying to get people up and going. Come on, let's do it. And you have a choice in how you're going, you're going to respond to this encouragement. Are you going to get up and do it? Or you'll think about it. Oh, as in, you know, people of Dan stayed in their ships. You know, I'm too busy. I got a lot of things to do. A lot of fish to catch. It's a lot more important than, you know, going up to fight and driving away the enemies of Israel. Let other people do that. I got my business here, I must attend. Well, let me tell you, you got your priorities wrong. If you have something more important than doing the things that God wants you to do, than serving first the kingdom of God, you need to review your priorities. A lot of us are very busy. Well, what are we busy with? If it's with serving the Lord, praise God. If you're really busy doing other things, and because of that you don't have time to serve the Lord, well, you know, review your priorities. Verse 23. Curse Merotz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Wow. Curse Merot for not coming to the help of the Lord. I thought God was almighty. He should be able to do anything. He, don't, he doesn't need my help. That's not what this verse is saying. There was a particular town that I guess whose help was needed and, and the angel of the Lord is saying curse them for not coming. It's not a curse word. It literally means you know, let, let bad things happen to them. Let them not have the blessings of God. Let them experience their defeat and fear and weakness because they would not come to the help of the Lord. Let me say this. God has all the power of the, in the world. But there are certain things God wants to accomplish in your life which he cannot without you. Okay? He gives you a free choice. He'll give you his power. But you need to still offer yourself for the service of God. You need to go up to the heights of the battlefield and risk your life for God. If you refuse to offer yourself or to be willing to pay some sort of a price, and because of that you're keeping away from serving the Lord, 
God is not going to do the best thing in your life. He wants to, but he can't. You're going to be left in that state of weakness and fear. Defeatism, defeatism, state of defeat. All right. But praise God, Barak, Barak was encouraged, and uh, many of the children of Israel were encouraged, and they went up to meet against the enemies of the children of Israel. Verse 11. Now Heber the Canaanite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Canaanites and pitched his tent near the Terebinth tree at Zaanim, which is beside Kedesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Haroshet Agoim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Barak alighted, and sorry, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Haroshet Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Well, praise God for this victory. And it's neat to see the different ways in which God was, was doing, uh, bringing this victory to pass. Uh, the first one is a kind of a question that might have caught your, your mind as we were reading through it before. He gives instruction to Barak not to go to Haroshet Agoim or to Chatzor and attack the Canaanite. He tells him, go to that mountain over there, Mount Tabor. I'll bring your enemies over there by the river Kishon, and you know, there you will defeat them. Well, that's kind of interesting. How is that going to happen? But all right, I'll go to that mountain and I'll see what God does. And uh, God uses this, this man, this really, you know, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Well, that, that's, that's, you know, what I see in Heber here in verse 11. Now, it's not as obvious at first reading, but uh, Heber was a Canaanite of the children of Hobab, uh, the father-in-law of Moses. So this was a, a clan of Midian that attached himself to Israel as Israel left Egypt and then went into uh, the land of Canaan. These people attached themselves. They were relatives of Moses. So all right, they wanted to join and God welcomed them and, and they were maybe up to this point somewhat faithful to God and the children of Israel. Well, one of them is leaving the rest and that's always a bad sign. And uh, he leaves them both geographically and politically. He is now not attached to them anymore. And if you were to skip down to verse, uh, we just stopped before it, in verse 17, it says, Therefore there was peace between Yabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Canaan. This guy made peace with the children of Israel. And, and of course, the rest of the children of Israel are not exactly guiltless in doing some of that. They were trying to get along with these people. But here was a guy that he loved his peace with them. He, he was willing to have peace with the children of Israel so that he will have peace and so that he will be able to continue with his comfortable life. If you looked at where he left from and where he came to, he left the probably more arid regions of Israel where the other uh, uh, Canaanites were and, and uh, established himself in the Galilee, which is a lot more lush and green and perhaps a pleasant place to live. And he had to compromise a little bit for that, but that's okay. He compromised and made peace with the enemies of Israel. And now he sees Barak and or, you know, his 10,000 men living and heading to Mount Tabor. And he's like, this is not good. This is not good. You know, this peace that I'm enjoying here, this is not going to last if this kind of behavior is allowed to happen. It has to stop. And he, he sends word to Sisera, look, this rebel, come get him quick before he disturbs the peace of the land. He wanted peace. He didn't want conflict. And yet God uses this man to bring Sisera up to exactly what God told Barak he would bring. He brought him to the river Kishon. All right. 
Well, Barak needs a little bit of encouragement still. And we saw that there. So, they arrive. And Deborah says, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Israel into your hands. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So, she's like, again, remember, he's facing these multitudes and chariots and she gives him the word, she encourages him. And he goes down. And There's one word here that again should catch your attention. It says, has not the Lord gone before you? What is she referring to? How, how could she tell the Lord has gone before them? And of course she's a prophetess. God could tell her that. But I believe there was something else going there. Let's see if you can pick it up. I'm going to go ahead and, and read some verses from chapter 5. Starting in verse 3. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the fields of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord. This Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. And we'll go ahead and go to Verse 20, they fought from the heavens. The stars in their courses fought against Israel. The torrent of Kishon swept them away, that ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on in strength. I just love the poetry of this chapter. But I don't know if you could tell, but there was a big rainstorm that came upon the place. All right, you know, what's a little bit of rain? Well, a little bit of rain is problems, you know, when you don't have paved roads, you're driving chariots of iron, and the ground around you starts turning into mud. That's a big problem. And it, it's a bigger problem if you might be, you know, right along a riverbed. And of course, in Israel, the riverbeds are usually dry, but not when it rains. And, and so it appears, what, what, what appears to have happened here, as best as we can tell from the passage, is Sisera arrayed himself before Barak, and the rain came, and the earth turned to mud, and the water in the, in the river started lifting. And God was the one who completely disabled the major weapon of the enemy to give victory to Israel. Now, it's neat to me, God's, I mean, God could have said, you know, Barak, just stay there on the mountains, you know, behold the salvation of the Lord, which Moses did. Moses told the children of Israel, you know, you just watch and see how God's going to save you. You're not going to have to do anything. Well, this time, God wanted them to do something. But God was going to take out the main you know, strength of the enemy. And that's what God does with us. God doesn't take us from the battle that we have to fight in our life again, our, against our enemies, uh, the devil, the world, and the flesh. But God disables them. He takes away their great power. He, he takes our flesh and he crucifies it with Christ so we can be saved. He gives us the Holy Spirit that allows us to, to act against the flesh, do the will of God. Uh, he, he, he robbed us from Satan's hand by paying for our sins himself. Satan can no longer use our sins against us. Uh, and, and Jesus says this, you uh, have good cheer. I have overcome the world. He has overcome the world for us. So, so, so God has, has defeated the enemy, but he wants us to join in the battle. He wants us to, in a sense, uh, do our part, what he wants us to do. Okay, because he wants to involve us. He wants us to use our faith. He wants us to earn reward, even though he can do it all himself. He wants us to participate. And so, like here, he disables the enemy and lets us take the victory. Praise God. All right, continuing in verse 17. However, Sisra had fled away on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Yabin, king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Yael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him 
and drove the peg in his temple and it went down to the ground for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera, dead with the peg in his temple. What's that all about? Well, the great champion of the enemy gets defeated by, you know, a woman in a tent. And there's two things about it that I think we can take encouragement from. Number one, it really was there to show that it was all of God. Okay? We have a choice. God has the power. And the weakest person in Israel could defeat the most powerful enemy of Israel if she was willing and when God gave the power. He made the greatest enemy of Israel completely helpless before her. All she needed was a tent peg and a hammer and she could take him out. And she did. She took it. Well, that's wonderful. The more worrisome part to me as I was reading it, boy, I mean, look at this. She disobeys her husband. I mean, her husband's a friend of the guy. I mean, what will he say? You know, she shows poor hospitality. <laughs> I mean, come on, she does all these things to show him how good of a hostess she is, and as soon as he's asleep, she takes him out. <laughs> but uh, I think it's wonderful because it shows whom God wanted to give the glory on that day. And it was the one that was going to hold no bars for God. She was willing to suffer from what her husband would do to her when he came back. And uh, she was willing to be, you know, lose her reputation as a hostess. You know, nothing mattered except putting to death the enemy of God. And she was willing to do whatever it takes. And it makes me think of a verse in Hebrews. It says this, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. It makes me ashamed. What am I willing to do against sin in my life? Am I willing to be like Yael and just accept whatever sacrifice it takes to put sin down in my life? Have I resisted unto blood? Puts us to shame. Continuing in verse 23, on that day God subdued Yabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Yabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Yabin, king of Canaan. To me, this is the most wonderful part of the passage. Because it means it wasn't just a one day or a one battle. You know, a lot of times we say, oh, they won the battle, but they lost the war. Oh, they won the battle, but then they kind of forgot about it and they allowed the enemy to regroup. I hate it when I read histories and you hear about some, you know, great general winning a victory on the field, you know, but he, he doesn't pursue it. He doesn't finish the job. And, you know, the enemy regroups and comes back and defeats him. It's like, why are you doing it? Well, this time they take the momentum. They had a victory and they're going to pursue it to the end. And, and this is a big job. And it probably took them many years. But really, about half of northern Israel was ruled at that time by Yabin. And they had to take, basically conquer another half of the land from what they presently had. So they won a big battle, but they kept at it, and they kept fighting until eventually, it says that they grew stronger and stronger, until eventually they completely wiped this guy out. And they conquered. It's interesting, you never hear about problems from, from the Canaanites after this. This was really the end of the Canaanites. Whereas with the Philistines, they keep battling back and forth. It's like Israel can never put an end to them. Well, the northern tribes, starting that day and for the next several years, they finished the job. Their job was really done. They completely conquered their territory. They finished it. And praise God for that. Uh, but again, we want to think about applications for ourselves. And if you would be willing to, let's turn to Second Peter chapter 1. There's uh, some thoughts there that the Lord has been exercising, exercising me on, as we say. And I wanted to share those, if you would give me a few minutes to do that in Second Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 2. 
says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, a couple of things I would like you to notice here. First, in verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God talks here about having given us the power to live a life of godliness. Okay, we're not on our own. He's not asking us to, on our own, go and, and become holy. Or we would lose. But he gave us his divine power. Oh, his... Uh, yeah, divine power. Verse 4, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. The divine nature. God wants us to partake of his nature. He actually wants us to be like him. Can you believe it? Yes. You know, it, it says, it's interesting, usually people say, you know, have you, you know, they say they've been saved. What have you been saved? I've been saved from hell. Well, praise God. Praise God he saved us from hell. You know, it's very hard to find in the scriptures where it says he came to save us from hell. It says he came to save us from our sins. Now, hell is the consequence of sins. So that's one of the things he saves us from. Praise God. But he really came to save us from our sins. So, yes, it's from the consequence of our sins. And one day it's going to be from the presence of sin, but in the meantime it's supposed to be from the power of sin. Okay, that's what he came to save us from. And I think too often we think about, you know, the future, like, well, yeah, it would be wonderful to be in heaven. But God wants us to be involved now in his work of salvation. He has given us his power and he wants us, like the children of Israel, to go out and battle. Okay, if there's something in my life that's that's not conformed to the image of Christ. Well, it requires work. And God expects me to work at it. He's given me his power, but I'm to offer myself up for the work. Let me read in closing a familiar verse. And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And we usually remember better the first half of this passage, is working all things for good. Praise God. But the good that he's working for is found in the second verse which is conforming us to the image of Christ. Praise God. He is working right now in our lives with that great design. And it's not just in heaven. It's here too. To conform us to the image of his son. And he just wants us to partake of the work. As we were reading in Peter, give all diligence. You know, you got one thing. Well, keep working at it. Don't stop. And with the promise that so an entrance will be gained into heaven for you. This is how we know we're going into heaven. Because he's working in us right now and making us fit for heaven. Praise God. Father, thank you for your love to us. Thank you for loving us so much to send your son, the Lord Jesus, to die for our sins. And uh, we think of your great desire for us to be delivered from our sins, not just from the consequence and not just eventually from the presence but also now in uh, our personal experience or the present. And we ask, Lord, that as your 
You say in your word you've given us your divine power to live a life of godliness. We ask that it might be manifested in our midst. You say you work all things for good to them that love you. And we say, Lord, do so. Keep working in our lives to make us more and more like your son. For we pray in his name. Amen.